This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody, and Happy New Year. This is Dr. David Perodin here with the Safety Doc Podcast. Excited to be here in the new year, and uh, I think we're into year three now of the show. Exciting time. Today, we will be talking about Temporary Autonomous Zones, or TAZs, T-A-Zs. Basically, I think they are safety's saviors. Uh, we're seeing more of these, and I want to talk about the relationship to safety. So temporary autonomous zones comes from Hakeem Bay, a.k.a. Peter Lamburn Wilson, um, who has the statement, quote, Are we who live in the present doomed never to experience autonomy, never to stand for one moment on a bit of land ruled only by freedom? So anyway, I'm going to talk about what that means, um, which you can kind of get a hint at. Basically, it's like these temporary zones where kind of the rules of society, the rules of government don't apply. And again, we've seen these. I'm going to bring out examples and what that means and, and where I think this is going for a trend. So a few anecdotes. Very unusual weather in Wisconsin. Um, we almost hit a high for like late December, just a couple days ago. And uh, we had pretty steady rain the entire day. Now, the problem with that is when you have rain and you have all of your Christmas lights hooked up outside, so basically it's strand after strand after strand connecting to each other. Each of those connections, if there's any moisture, it can short out kind of the whole system. So basically no snow, nothing to protect all of my wires and connections from the rain. So I was kind of working nonstop throughout the night because boom, would trip the GFI or break the breaker. <laughs> and then I would have to reset it. And then 45 minutes later, the same thing. But I did get through the night with the Christmas lights on for the neighborhood to enjoy and passersby. So, because we're not too far from a pretty popular road in our town. But anyway, that issue's kind of gone now that it's very, very cold outside and getting colder. Don't have to worry about that. But yes, rain and strands and strands of Christmas lights hooked together 
out in the open, those don't go well together. So I have been getting emails from the Wyoming Department of Tourism saying, hey, this is a great time to come out to Wyoming um, if you're interested in snowmobiling or like snowmobiling. Like we have nothing else to offer you, but it would be great for you to drive 10 hours or more from where you're at to come out here and just hang out because really like not a lot's going on out here and we need the tourism money. Um, and I'm like, no, no. So I, I signed up a few years ago when we were doing our South Dakota, North Dakota, that whole truck and um, wanted to get information about Wyoming, what they had to offer. So, but they are always, always emailing, like, please come out here. We'll show you anything in our state. Just come here, spend some dollars. So, um, not that I'm against Wyoming, but yes, in January, I am not a Wyoming fan. So, not at all. Um, I am down to just a couple sport coats because I took them into the dry cleaner to, of course, be dry cleaned. I've got some consulting work where I need to be on the road and have my sport coats all freshened up. So basically, I have what I deem my a couple sport coats like this one, just black, and then also my Herb Tarlick sport coats. If you remember WKRP in Cincinnati, the TV show, Herb Tarlick always had these crazy kind of patterned sport coats. Um, and I still have a couple of those that I need to get rid of. Actually, I look back and when I wore those into work uh, maybe six, seven years ago, I don't know how I pulled it off without anybody ever saying, dude, like those do not <laughs> match this era. Might have matched the 1970s, but not right now. Maybe it was just trendy. People were like, he's a trendsetter. He's really cool. So it was really cool. Kind of still am cool, but like that's probably what they thought. So yeah, the Herb Tarlicks have got to work their way out of the closet. So goodbye. Um, something, I've, I play fantasy football in two leagues. In one league, it's guys I went to college with. So, you know, 20 plus years we've been in the same league. And the other one is a work league. So very strange results this year. Never experienced this before. So I've won the league that I've been with the same group of guys for like 20 years. Like I've won that one twice. Um, but this year in both leagues, I finished, I started out strong, was in first place, maybe through week three or four, then kind of tailed off. Finished the season with a losing record, but still in the upper half of the league. So one has 12 teams, one has eight. So I was in fifth, and I was also in fourth. So I made the playoffs in both. Lost the first playoff game. So I made the playoffs with a losing record. Lost the first playoff game. And then I won the consolation game. So in the 12-team league, I finished in fifth. So in the upper half of the league with a losing record. And in my eight-team league, I finished third, also with a losing record. So I don't know how to celebrate that. Like, it's like, yay, I made the playoffs and I got a playoff win, but I had a losing record in both leagues. So <laughs> hard to build on that going into the next season, that you're in the upper half, but you didn't have a winning record. So thought about that last night. 
Well, I was out running. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I feel bad about it, feel good about it, what that all means. Um, it's just fantasy football, right? But yeah. So let us talk about temporary autonomous zones, or we're just going to call them TAZs from now on, because it kind of sounds like something from Australia, right? TAZ, Tasmanian, but it's not. TAZ, T-A-Z, temporary autonomous zone. I have my book, Lessons of Lore Manhattan, which will be released in about 90 days by publishing house Roman and Littlefield. It's exciting because the book was completed in September. Then it went through a, a, a cut down with my uh, one of my editors. We went from 75,000 words to 58,000 words. And now I'm with my finishing editor, which is um, basically going line by line and just making sure we don't have anything grammatically that needs to be touched up or kind of it's it's switching out weak words for strong words. Um, it's an interesting process at this point because I have a phone conference once a week with my finishing editor and I, I work pretty much daily on the document to just go through and might just change a word here or there. Um, but yeah, it is, it's amazing because I had 13 points with my finishing editor and it's like, do we keep this sentence on page 143 or not? Like, what's the argument for it? What's the argument against it? And in most cases, we'll get rid of it. Um, but in a few cases, we'll say, no, it needs to stay. So that gets to be this finite process. But it's also super exciting right now because it's done. And really, these are the finishing touches. Danny Woodburn, you might know him from so many movies and TV episodes he's been in, but popular um, as Mickey Abbott, um, who was a friend of Kramer's on the TV show Seinfeld, uh, was in several episodes, Mickey Abbott. So Danny and I um, were on the phone the other night for about 45 minutes talking about the book and the foreword that Danny is writing. Because the theme of the book is we have 10 million students with disabilities that we really need to get off of the sidelines of safety and into the game of school safety, onto the playing field. Um, and the reasons that they're on the sideline usually are, are, are just because um, teachers don't want to have these students exposed to potential drill, drill trauma and things like that. It's stuff like that. So, so we talk about that. And, and it's really cool when you talk to a celebrity who now has become a friend um, who you see when on several TV shows and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I talked to him last night for 45 minutes. That's who Dad was talking to. Um, he's a terrific person and very appreciative for Danny to be writing the forward for the book. And I've had numerous um, endorsements that have come in for the book, which one person um, uh, – who wrote an endorsement, very rarely writes endorsements for anyone who he is an expert in his field, published, um, you know, numerous times and, and just the, the top sought after person. When I approached him, he said, you know what, Dave, I'll read it, but it's unlikely you'll get an endorsement. I just don't endorse anything. And he emailed me back, said, I love it. Here are two endorsements. Pick which one that you want to use. So I'm like, wow. So it's really fun to be approaching having a book coming out from a publishing house. Um, just, it's really exciting. So let's talk about these temporary autonomous zones because they do kind of fit in with my book, Lessons of Lore Manhattan and this rescue 
of 500,000 people in nine hours from lower Manhattan on September 11th, 2001, that kind of happened within this dimension which was excluded from what would be like a government operation or something, a standard protocol. It just kind of happened. Happened through a command from Admiral Lloyd saying, anybody with a boat, come down and do what you can do to contribute to this rescue. And that was it. And then this temporary autonomous zone kind of created where people just figured out what they needed to do. And there weren't any specific governing rules that had to be put into place or protocols. People just sensed it and did what they had to do. So we're going to talk about that. So let, let me read about um, the temporary autonomous zones, um, give you a little more information. So um, Hakeem Bey is kind of a polarizing figure. So I did think of, about including this in the book. I, I get at this in the book and a indirect route. And because Hakeem Bey is kind of polarizing, I didn't want to introduce him into the book because um, a lot of the stuff he writes isn't very clearly cited. And even so what Peter Lamburn Wilson and puts out there, like you can pirate this and there's no copyright and stuff like that. So you, you, you just don't know where this stuff came from and you can't take the risk when you're writing a book, a nonfiction empirical book like I'm writing of putting things in there that you're not exactly sure where they came from. You can't do that. Just too many bad things can <laughs> happen if you're bringing in information that might have been taken from somewhere else and you're not properly citing it. So that's one thing I'm very, very conscious of in the book. But let's let's talk about this. Okay. Coined in 1990, not that long ago, scholar Hakeem Bey. So basically he's an anarchist. Uh, the term temporary autonomous zone seeks to preserve the creativity, energy, and enthusiasm of autonomous uprisings without replicating the inevitable betrayal and violence that has been the reaction to most revolutions throughout history. The answer, according to Bay, lies in refusing to wait for a revolutionary moment and instead create spaces of freedom in the immediate present, whilst avoiding direct confrontation with the state. So basically saying that the people create these zones, create these special areas that they can operate kind of outside of the law. Some examples I'm going to talk about in a little bit be like Burning Man in Nevada, Slab City out in California, places that exist which really aren't influenced by the law. The Burning Man emerges into the pseudo city for, you know, period of time, then it fades away. Slab City is more or less permanent, but still kind of outside of the realm of regulation in policing. So these temporary autonomous zones. So just some examples. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. 
Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Um, so, but I'm, I'm talking about these temporary autonomous zones in a capacity of safety which are more tame than, than kind of where Bay goes. So that's, again, where, where we, Bay and I kind of go off into different areas. But anyway, temporary autonomous zones are, or these, these periods of time that exist, situations that exist that are exempted from outside rules and regulations. So let me move on. All right. So um, here's the part to remember, okay, on a temporary autonomous zone. If we wrote it down, the authorities would soon learn about it and would have to dissolve it. Keep your senses open. The nearest temporary autonomous zone is nearer than you think. So basically, Bay is saying that as soon as government becomes involved, the temporary autonomous zone is gone. Like it cannot exist if, as soon as government starts to influence it. It's just like it's gone. It just fades quickly like that. Just like a big fan comes in, blows away this, this cloud. It's gone. So I want to give some thoughts again on this temporary autonomous zone. Okay. So this also goes with social contract theory or Hobbes Leviathan, which I've talked about in previous podcasts, but meaning that we trust in the government to keep us safe, to keep things orderly, and we exchange um, that we have restrictions at the airport. We have to take our shoes and socks off, um, that our phone calls can be monitored, our bank transactions, things like that. We have rules that we abide by, you know, speed limits, things, whatever, um, in order to have this, this orderly society, right? So we have this exchange. But what, what Bay is saying is, yeah, that, we understand that. It, 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 he's feeling very constrained by that. Like this bothers him. And he's saying we need to, we need to fight back against that, that we can, we can, work together, we can evolve something, we can be very creative. This is all stifling creativity, you know, that's kind of his thing. We can be expressive and creative and we can get things done without having these systems telling us and dictating what needs to be done and how things need to be done. So that's where this gets into this whole discussion of social contract theory. So Bay would really argue with his TAS that the TAS has no social contract theory to it at all. It just exists. Um, and it, it, it exists because there isn't a social contract theory. I mean, you are pretty much responsible to yourself and outside of just the basic rules of, you know, not harming and attacking other people. I mean, 
fine. Like if you want to, um, yeah, play whatever kind of music, if you want to, you know, drive whatever type of car and whatever type of way or, you know, things like that, go for it. So let's talk about what this, how this kind of manifests in every day. So Burning Man, whoa, like we've seen, you know, on TV that the images that come out of Burning Man, the big, um, you know, sculptures that are set on fire and the whole ceremonies that go around them. So this, this actually happens once a year, tens of thousands of people, and it, it's growing, okay, it's growing. Happens in Nevada's Black Rock Desert. So they create what's called Black Rock City. It's temporary. It's this temporary metropolis. It's dedicated to community, to art, self-expression, self-reliance. I mean, everything that you wouldn't see conventionally walking down Main Street, USA. But it's okay in Black Rock City, this temporary metropolis. This is this temporary autonomous zone where kind of anything goes. Again, there are core rules. I mean, you can't go around punching people in the face or evoking violence or something like that, but your own personal self-expression, yeah, absolutely. So it's this crucible of creativity and all are welcome, all right? So Burning Man is not a festival. It's a community. This is how it identifies itself as a community. It's a temporary city, a global cultural movement based upon practical principles. So I've never participated in Burning Man. Don't think I ever would. I'd be curious to do that <laughs> just to see what it's like once if I went with some friends. Um, but it is the fact that this exists and it exists outside of, again, um, law enforcement having to go through a whole registration process, you know, vetting. Um, vehicle codes, spacing, fire codes on how closely things can be put together, food preparation. I mean, all of these are not there. This is its own organic situation that in community that evolves. People can kind of do whatever they want at Burning Man. And for the most part, it goes well. Um now, of course, you know, you're always going to have under situations like this, people who might get into fights or, or whatever. But that, I mean, that can happen kind of at any event, big concerts, whatever. But for the most part, people have this set of human rules that they do unto others, as you want done unto yourself, that they abide by. It's just there's much more expression that you're going to experience at Burning Man. Probably a whole bartering system too. cash probably doesn't hold a lot of value. But um but it's pretty neat that this exists and it continues to exist. And there isn't this movement by the government or, you know, Nevada to come in and to shut it down or to try to regulate it. And it's this weird thing of like, you know, what happens if there is, you know, somebody gets murdered at Burning Man or some type of fire, you know, breaks out and destroys things and property. I mean, how does that all happen when you're outside of kind of the, the rules of society? How do these things get dealt with? I don't know. I don't know. But for the most part... This is a great example of a temporary autonomous zone, and it's growing and it's building. Okay, so here's here's a couple things from the Burning Man website. It says we don't book acts or provide entertainment. What happens here is up to you. There is no corporate sponsorship. You are entering a 
de-commitified space that values who you are, not what you have. You are expected to collaborate, be inclusive, creative, connective, and clean up after yourself. Participate actively as a citizen of Black Rock City, which is approximately 100 miles north, northeast of Reno. Again, city kind of evolves, fades away when the activity is done. I think it goes on for like, I don't know, a couple weeks, then it's done. So that is one example of a temporary autonomous zone. But the fact is, these things are becoming more prevalent across the United States and around the world, where law enforcement and governments are backing off. They're not invading these. It's not, again, these are existing um, independent of government regulation. And it's, it's pretty fascinating that that is actually happening, that we're seeing these exist without kind of this damper being put on through some attempt of government regulation. So what I, what I actually perceive out of this is I think we have an easing that is happening right now with the social contract between citizens and the government. I think we've seen this in the rescues that happened through Cajun Navy Relief, Hurricane Harvey and Irma. Triton Relief, um, the efforts um, that that were happening um, with the rescue for Hurricane Florence, um, that actually got stifled. That did kind of become a temporary autonomous zone. Triton Relief, a 5013C or C3, came in um, and was was willing to help people evacuate. Um, from the East Coast, but then it was the emergency operation systems of FEMA and the government which stifled that. I did a podcast with Katie Pashan. can tune into that. So that's a case when you had a, a TAS develop, and then it was snuffed out. But the TAS that developed with Cajun Navy Relief and other organizations helping out kind of grassroots in um, like Houston after the hurricane in 2017, um, that, that did have the feel of a temporary autonomous zone. Now, you did have cooperation there with some government entities, so kind of not like a true temporary autonomous zone, but kind of because it, it was more or less um, leaning on like Cajun Navy relief and third parties such as the app Zello to help people communicate in Facebook Messenger, not so much into 911 systems and government systems. So kind of had this um, equilibrium that was going on. So it wasn't the government shutting down. It was more the government welcoming and facilitating. It was and What we saw Hurricane Florence, though, in 2018 was more of this government shutdown of the 5013Cs. And I don't think that's right. I think we should be able to declare a state of temporary autonomous zone during a crisis situation, which means a 5013C, and maybe we extend this out to other people, but especially a 5013C like Triton Relief Group, um, then has protections extended to it to kind of manifest as it needs to outside of government restrictions to do rescues. So we know that that model works. It worked really, really well for um, Houston, for example, in 2017. Let's talk about 
another situation where we have a temporary autonomous zone, but this one has lasted longer. Slab City in Nyland, California. So it used to be um, a World War II base. So let me, let me read about this. So Slab City. Slab City, or The Slabs, is a free campsite and alternative living community located near an active bombing range in the desert city of Nyland, California. Previously an old World War II base, Marine Barracks Camp Dunlap, the campsite earns its name for the concrete slabs that remain long after the military base has been bulldozed and abandoned. The permanent residents, also known as slabbers, most often end up in Slab City due to poverty. Many are said to subsist off government checks, though some also stay for the feeling of freedom that comes from living in an uncontrolled off-grid area in the middle of the desert. Okay, what I just described, temporary autonomous zone. With no electricity, fresh water, or sewage treatment, residents are forced to rely on solar panels and their own waste system. The residents share one communal shower, a concrete cistern that is fed by a hot spring 100 yards away. So some of the people who live at Slab City, call Slab City home, have been there for years. And yes, some are there um, because they're, they're destitute. Others aren't. Others have chosen that lifestyle. They've chosen the freedom of Slab City to be away from the constraints of government and people mandating that they do certain things, that they have their, their lawn a certain height, that they have a compliance with their homeowners association and things like that. So these are people who have the ability to probably live anywhere and choose to live in what is this temporary autonomous zone that doesn't have, again, electricity, doesn't have a police force, fire, all of these other things, it's not there. So it's it's largely governed, again, watching videos on this, like on YouTube and, and people who've gone there and interviewed people, it's, you know, mind your own business, be neighborly, and typically things will be okay. Not always. <laughs> In Slab City, I mean, there is a, a risk going into environments um, like that. But again, this is one of these temporary autonomous zones that continues to exist. So there are others out there. These are just two examples. So we talked about the New York City Harbor Rescue on 9-11-2001. What developed a battery park as 500,000 people were coming down to Battery Park. They interfaced with the boats in the harbor. Most of them were tugboats. Some sightseeing, very few government boats. And the system just developed. Again, a order went out from Commander Loy, and he said, anybody with a boat, come down and do what you can do to help out. Basically, kind of paraphrase that, but basically that was it. So people were showing up with different types of boats and getting people from Manhattan over to Hoboken and whatever they needed to do, and in whatever ways they needed to do it. So, you know, traditionally you would have a certain gangplank and whatever, but sometimes you're just taking doors off your boat and you're setting that down and tying up next to a rail at Battery Park and people are walking across a door to get onto your boat. Things which are not, you know, per 
Navy Coast Guard regulations, right? Or Coast Guard regulations, harbor regulations. You just did what you had to do. And nobody was telling you it was right. Nobody was telling you it was wrong. And the system just naturally developed and sustained itself without this government influence. There were not additional orders being barked out by Admiral Loy. It was very much organic. People who were doing the rescue, conducting the rescue, just knew what to do. We all basically have that sense, right? If something happened in your neighborhood last year, big storm comes through, one of my neighbors, huge branch falls off of his tree. And I'm cleaning up my own yard, but this branch is out there. He's elderly, comes out with some weird type of saw. I don't know what it was, some hand saw. This never would have worked to cut this tree up. He's sitting on a lawn chair and he is he's trying to cut this thing down and eventually move it to the front of his house, his driveway, so it'd be picked up by the city. So I noticed this. And I go over with my saws and quickly saw this thing up and, and just take it out so it's by the curb for him. But again, I, the system develops. You just know what to do. Like you help out your neighbor in that situation that is spontaneous. You know, I don't, I don't need government regulations on whatever, you know, and you, you just use common sense and deal with it. So... Um, so that harbor rescue is really fascinating, though, for the fact that I think a lot of people are under the impression that this was a government rescue. And there was just the order given from a government level, but it was the rescue was largely organic, not government. Okay, so that's that's the part. And it evolved and it was very effective. And then once it got done, again, temporary autonomous zone, so temporary. After nine hours, the last person's rescued off of Battery Park. It's done. It dissolves. It's gone. But it was this whole new kind of dimension which existed. And nobody was sitting there scrutinizing the um, ways that boats were moving in and, and barking out orders and things like that, and evaluating and whatever. It just it happened. Um, and there was because it, people had the freedom to do things and they didn't have to follow through a flip chart and go through 10 steps before making one foot, 10 steps in like a flow chart or guide or whatever before they could move a boat one foot. You know, we're talking about, you know, just it, it would have become like a bad day at the McDonald's drive through like everyone backed up like honking their horns. It wasn't that way because of this temporary autonomous zone. So we're seeing these things happen more um, after crisis situations. So we talked about 9-11 and the harbor. I talked about Cajun Navy relief in 2017, Hurricanes Irma and Harvey. And then also Triton relief in 2018 um, with Hurricane Florence. So organizations, again, which are organic through the people that develop. And these cases registered as 5013Cs but they're paying for their own gas. These are people who are not going through like some specific type of training. They have innate skills. They've, they've, a lot of them have years as of boating, for example, if they're operating boats. But I mean, they'll send out a group and it might be, you know, people with boat experience and this is also a dentist and this is somebody who works as an accountant, but they all come together in this kind of temporary autonomous zone and do what needs to be done. So 
The frightening part of this is with Hurricane Florence, the Emergency Operations Command out of FEMA, the different government levels, um, stalled the 5013Cs from rescuing people and, and didn't really help with interfacing them with different resources. Uh, that happened in, in Harvey. Like they would they would help give them warehouse space and, and free up lanes on highways through state patrols so they could transport, you know, pickup trucks hauling boats and stuff like that. Just citizens, citizen rescues. So um, that needs to happen. What happened with Florence and, and FEMA and the EOCs dragging their feet or saying, you can't put boats in the water, you can't do these rescues, um, we can't have that. <laughs> we can't have that. We need to have these temporary autonomous zones um, uh, fostered in a time of crisis. It is the future, and it's proven itself. And I think the reason that it didn't happen for Florence was that there was a genuine observation by the government that, you know what, it worked out really well a year prior for, you know, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma that uh, is it where people are thinking FEMA isn't as important as the 5013 Cs as these organizations, Cajun Navy Relief, Triton Relief, and are people going to start looking away from the government during a time of crisis and or natural disaster? Are they going to then go to these kind of temporary autonomous zone groups, which can mobilize very rapidly and do a terrific job and then do a terrific job kind of disbanding? Although we know with like Cajun Navy Relief, people come back or stay on the scene and actually help people rip out, you know, soaked drywall and kind of get their lives and footing back underneath them. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I think there is this realization of the social contract um, that has established with these, these civilian organizations where people have looked to them. Again, using like AppZello and Facebook and interacting with these individuals and these, organ, you know, these, these grassroots organizations um, that are funded just through donations. Um, and maybe there's a fear that if this is allowed to happen, will people no longer see the need for FEMA? Now, I've argued I think FEMA completely needs to change into being um, – it, it needs to be a, a resource connection organization. So identifying the 5013Cs, warehouses, um, maybe National Guard, all of that, and just how to connect everything together. And that is what I would see as a very effective use of FEMA, which is a complete overhaul of FEMA, you know, right now. Because um, FEMA does not right now embrace these 501c3s um, like it did in the past. But, but really as this networking organization to be really on top of how can we involve everyone that can help with this rescue. And maybe then also... Um, utilize some communication, you know, some, some more sophisticated communication systems that would be available. So um, we also see this, this whole thing of it's just starting to emerge where commercial drones now can be partnered up with other commercial drones and they can scan areas. 
and that was something FEMA and, and the FAA, everybody was really against during safety or during the, these type of events, you know, like to get it, get flyovers and get information reconnaissance as fast as they can get it. The problem is, you know, what if you have video coming back and it does show, you know, people who have perished and, and now you have this liability and so forth and just, um, or what if this contributes to looting and things like that? So, but that's evolved. I mean, software has evolved where you can have the video streams come into a, a main source, which is then monitored and kind of this mosaic put together. You can get these fast images of areas and know like here are quadrants, you know, um, one through 42, we know that quadrants 21, 28, and 33 are where we need to like get most of our resources to. So, oh, just a weather alert. Um, so, all right. Um, when resources show up, we have to be able to incorporate them into our response systems, meaning these temporary autonomous zones need to exist. An example I give in a class I teach at the university level. What if you are an administrator at a school? Let's say you're a principal. In elementary school, you have a student with autism, fourth grader, wanders away from the school during recess and you have a body of water nearby, maybe a mile away. And suddenly you've identified the student is missing and we need to go out and look for the student. You've placed a call into 911. And at the same time, a neighbor from the school comes over um, and you know maybe someone at the school has contacted him and said, hey, come over. Like, we know that you have a drone and we have a child who just went missing. And this, this neighbor comes over commercial drone operator says, hey, I can get this drone up in the air and wh who am I looking for? What, tell me, we can have some video image. Um, you know, what, what's the student wearing and all of that? So do you interface with this person? Do you say, yeah, like you now are part of this rescue effort or the search effort. So wearing a blue jacket and we think he's over here. So they you know, can immediately like fly the drone over to, in, you know, the area that could be near the water and could be going back and forth to, to make sure and um, that the child hasn't gone to that area. But the question is like, do you interface with that person? Because they're probably not part of your safety plan, right? You don't have in your safety plan on page 28 that if a student wanders from school and somebody offers up their drone that, Yes, it's okay to incorporate that resource into your rescue. Or do you wait another five minutes for police to arrive and they might not have a drone with them and then another five minutes after that for the fire department to arrive who probably would have a drone with them versus like you have this immediate resource. Do you create this temporary autonomous zone? That's the thing. Again, and it's kind of a pseudo temporary autonomous because the school in itself is a government entity. But, you know, you could have, a, again, this temporary autonomous zone in a rescue could could just be, let's say it's somebody out in the country and they are, um, you know, a, a elderly parent with dementia has wandered from the home and somebody, the same scenario, somebody comes over with a commercial drone and says, I can get this up in the air, I have forward-looking infrared, and I can immediately start looking for this person. Um, is that something we would embrace as a society? And why wouldn't we, I guess? Of course, you can argue pitfalls. You can argue pitfalls to everything. But 
you know, where where does the social contract, where do these temporary autonomous zones all fall? And I think we have to be much more open to the fact that we need to be spontaneous in using the resources that are available to us during a rescue in the moment. So I want to switch gears right now and talk about something I, I find very interesting, and I'm going to focus a podcast um, specific to this. I want to get a guest on to talk about this. I have a couple people in mind, but um, for those of you that don't know, China by 2020 is going to rank all of their citizens with a social credit score. So it's a social credit system. So you can go in and, and read more about this, but it's it's really fascinating, and I have mixed feelings about it. Um, but yeah, is it is it a way that they are punishing people for not being compliant, or is this really a way to reward and acknowledge the people who are acting as responsible citizens? So you can get into this argument of, is this a big brother? Is this trying to be conformist? And yes, I, I get that. And we can go down that path. And we're not going to go there today. It's more of a primer just to, to put this topic out there. Um, but I think it's, it's fascinating because um, here, here's some examples. So people can be rewarded or punished according to their scores, whatever your score is it would come up. And um, so they're, they're similar to what we have right now in the United States for our financial credit scores. So kind of be similar to that, but you'd have like your social capital score. So your score can move up or down depending upon your behavior. So, yeah, I mean, if you get a ticket for speeding or playing your stereo too loud or whatever, um, your score could go down. Now, if you've contributed time to helping others, um, if you've contributed some kind of scholarly work or whatever like that, or, you know, I'm not sure where all of these criteria will fall or, or what will help earn you points and what will take away points, um, your score can go up. Now, part of me wonders, what if you do nothing? Like, what if you just kind of back out of the system and go low profile, meaning you're not making social media, you're not really interacting much in public, does that preserve your score or do you have to keep doing things in order to keep your score up? So I don't know. But here are some things that get impacted. So if you have a lower score, or let's say you didn't, you know, pay some of your bills on time and, you know, also you've missed some days at work. I don't know how this whole thing happens, but um, maybe you, you don't get a, a, a ticket for a plane. You have to take a train instead. Maybe if something else happens, you lose the right to use the train and you have to use a bus. I heard about that, listened to a, a documentary where somebody actually did lose points. It was, it was a young man lost however many social credit points, and he went to get a train ticket in China, and it, the train would have gotten him to his destination in two hours. But he didn't have enough points to use the train, um, so he was given then the option of to use the bus, which took him ten hours. So he he worked hard to do things, um, contributing 
to uh, volunteer work, um, some things like that. Again, I don't I don't know this very well um, at at the moment. I don't think anybody really does, and we'll hear more about this. But um, and he got his score up, and he got these kind of rewards back or these these things back. So this also another thing is internet speed. So you could have your internet slowed down. <laughs> so imagine that. Um, yeah. Instead of having your modem, you go to dial up or something like that until you, you get your score up. So I thought about this last night when I was out running. And what would this look like in the United States? What could it look like? And again, I see some merit in this. Um, and I also see some definite positionality because who's making the decision on what is good or what is bad? And again, it could really narrow down to one person in theory. I mean, could make this whole list of this is good, this is bad um, versus, you know, like a society establishing kind of the set of what is good and what is bad. But don't, you kind of already have that, right? But would this motivate, how, would this motivate people to be better citizens, to be more responsible if it was done in the United States? I don't think it would. I just, I don't think it would change behavior if people weren't paying their bills, if people were speeding, if people were, you know, posting um, kind of harsh things online and, and things like that, if they weren't keeping their properties um, up, things like that. Would, would it change the behavior? I just don't think so. I think what it would do, though, is it would people who already are complying with, you know, either the, what it is to follow the golden rule and, and also complying with generally, you know, government rules, um, you know, such as having your sidewalk shoveled X number of hours after the snow falls, things like that, whatever. Um they would they would latch on to this because that's external validation and probably go a little more above and beyond to earn these social credit points um, and maybe secure some more perks, um, whatever that might be. But I don't know. I just don't see it. I don't see it working in the U.S. because I think the people who are already doing this maybe it acknowledges them, so you'd have that, but it doesn't do anything beyond that. So, um, but yeah, really fascinating. Check out social credit system in China and watch a few of the documentaries that are out there. Read some of the articles to get this feeling. But by 2020, this will be in place. So every citizen, just as you would have a credit score in the U.S., every citizen in China is going to have a social credit score. And... Yeah, you can, and the score will will change, and you know fluctuate, and you will have different systems available to you and resources based upon where your score lies. Pretty f interesting social experiment, and again, I'm not fully in a position of being like against it or for it. I'm very just neutral and want to observe it. And again, China is much different than the United States. How this might transfer. 
But I think there are some things to be learned here, social credit system, even for how we do school safety um, and how we are looking at, like maybe I thought about this from also, you know, always trying to apply this to my, my own context, but working as a school safety consultant, um, earning kind of social credit, like if you are a student ambassador, for example, if you help other students who are new to the school learn the way that things are done around here through this social, and then you, you gain some social credit by getting this ambassador status. I, I think there's something to that. There is some merit to that. Um, so there are ways I think we can incorporate this. And also the social credit, why would that, why wouldn't it apply to the volunteers in like Triton Relief Group, the 501C3? Why wouldn't they receive some type of social credit that then could be maybe manifested into either some type of tax credit or, you know, I I, I don't know. It's, it's almost like um, that if you're, giving of that you you get back either from the government or like almost like we have this card that the football club sells us where we can get 10% off of, you know some purchases at restaurants or stuff like that i i don't know how this whole thing would work out but it does seem that a social credit system has some way to interface with these temporary autonomous zones and people who are contributing to these in in disaster situations that there is some way to work all of that together. So, all right, as I wrap up here, it has been a busy start to 2019 for the safety doc, um, ending one law class that I taught in fall, preparing another law class, which I am instructing in spring, and they're both different. <laughs> so um, it's the there isn't really much overlap. So it's a very, I have to create instead of just basically import the class that I did in fall plus some tweaks. I have to create a new class for spring, taking up some time. I still have been, I have been able to get out at night and get in some running, which has been terrific. Uh, the weather has been really nice for that. Um, might be a little icy here in the next few days. So I might have to get the cleats out and, uh, and go running that way, but that works fine. Always like that is a good reset. I work around a, a lake, a small lake in our community, and then some forest area. So it is just really nice. Um, I think your body needs that. The, the movement of the blood and, and um, the exposure to the outdoors and the green space, even though it's at night, um, to kind of just reset, just feel it so important, making sure that you do that. Um, but yeah, I did also glue a door, one of my kitchen cabinet doors, a seam was coming apart, um, original to the house. And it was just, I, over time, I think the humidity and stuff changes. And I took this door off and I was amazed at how heavy this one single door was, just a cabinet door you know, for like where you put your dishes and stuff like that. So back in the day, you know, they used to make things like super solid, like super full core wood, not hollow core. So I'm like, oh my goodness, like this thing's really heavy. So took it down and 
put it in my vise and fixed it all up and looks perfect. Like put it back together with wood glue and stuff like that. So feel really good about that. Um, yeah, did have a very good time over the winter break with uh, relatives, getting all of um, kind of the chores that needed to be done in the house done. <laughs> so have a long list of things here as the safety dock and one is to burn photos. You know how you take photos on your phone? I don't I don't have a camera. Well, I do have a camera. I haven't used it though for a couple of years. Just use the phone cuz the phone's good. Like I have relatives who have like a really really expensive cameras, which is fine like if you're into photography and stuff, but I'm like I just need the phone camera, which is very good, you know. And I want to give a shout out to John Grant and the 405 Media, the 405media.com out of Los Angeles, California, for airing the Safety Doc podcast. Thank you so much uh, for making the show available to a very wide audience. Thank you to Aaron Clary, friend of mine and also host of the Clary podcast. You can find him at captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. Um, He likes to winter now in Las Vegas, was in the Minnesota area for a number of years, but decided the cold wasn't for him anymore. Smart choice. Now down in Las Vegas. But check out um, Aaron Clary, captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. And also my good friend, TJ Martinell at Mountain Pass Podcast. You can find it on SoundCloud, Mountain Pass Podcast. Uh, TJ lives on a mountain in Washington. Um, His podcast is terrific. And you'll hear about when he does his hikes with Reese, the dog of a neighbor, and just all the different adventures from TJ terrific um a a terrific podcast the mountain pass podcast so and please check out awareness podcast awareness podcast hector solis also a terrific friend has released a new episode on predators but has actually evolved that term to sexual offenders um, and talks about why the use of the term predator predator is misleading because people tend to think a predator as someone, you know, scary or, or dirty and grungy and all of this and sleazy. But really, when you look at the profile of a, a, a groomer, it is typically someone who isn't like that. It can be someone that the recipient or the, the child um, knows, um, could be, you know, a, a relative or somebody in the community or just a, somebody who presents that you would never expect to be a groomer so evolves that discussion in his latest podcast give it a check especially if you're a parent thank you everybody and stay safe This has been the Safety Doc Podcast. 
with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perota. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.